I don't, I don't even know. Just a, I was just a piece of garbage masquerading mm. as a human being. Right. And that somehow I'd managed to fool my husband all these years and he was going to figure it out and leave me. And that my sons would figure it out. And that they would stop loving me. Like, wow, that's 12 years sober and I'm, it still hits me. I think that's my bottom, really. And I didn't even know I was there. It's only after we start to heal and I realize, oh my God, this was my core truth that I lived with. This is what I was drinking. To, to try to numb was the pain of believing that I was so unlovable that my own family would abandon me. I'm Matt. Hey, I'm Steve. Hey, I'm John. This is the Sober Friends Podcast. We're here for the sober curious, the new guy, and the old timer. Here to talk about the stuff anyone looking to live alcohol-free has to face day to day, and how we overcame those struggles. We speak for no 12-step group, but we do try to remain anonymous. You're not alone. This is the Sober Friends Podcast. Poor Steve isn't with us tonight. He's not feeling well. He finally got the Rona. <laughs> Fortunately, the other person who in his house who is more medically fragile is doing okay so that's the good news and steve will be fine but no steve we do have john with us back tonight and we have gene mccarthy from the bubble hour podcast from the unpickled book series gene welcome Hello. to the show what an honor well thank you so much i'm delighted to be here i feel like i want to jump in immediately like why are you stopping the bubble hour but i feel like are we are we because if you look at, if you're somebody who's into recovery podcasts and you go to the mental health, mental health fitness category of anywhere you go and you look, you're going to find Gene's face staring back at you. It's, it's up there for the most part. This yeah. podcast isn't on that list, but the bubble hour is. <laughs> so you're, you probably have seen Gene smiling right back at you like she is to us tonight but i guess we don't necessarily have to start there gene tell us a little bit about you what what got you into the recovery community you want to tell us a little bit of your backstory and then we'll jump into your book your podcast and how you make life better for those of us in recovery oh sure well thanks for having me it's nice to see you both and hello to your audience um i this is i guess my story is the height of irony because i got into the online recovery community just trying to secretly get sober and i uh live in canada in a city of about a hundred thousand people and own a business here i've since retired but i was very you know high profile member of my community at the time when i got sober which is nearly 12 years ago now and so i was one of those people that was terrified to walk into an aa meeting terrified for anyone to know I was struggling. And um, my fear in going to any kind of recovery group in my community was, wasn't, well, it was 50-50. Half that I didn't want anyone to know I was struggling and half that I was terrified that they would say, you're not bad enough. You can't come in. I had the same problem. Right? I, was, was, I was afraid of that, that somebody would say, well, you're not bad enough to be here. We yeah. all think that. I mean, we, right? we, we all think that whether it, it's, you know, uh, out of fear of not belonging or justifying why I don't belong there. I'm not that bad. Right. I didn't I didn't lose my house, my wife, my kids, my job. I didn't go to jail. I didn't go to treatment. Those are just all yets. Um you know, you can you can you can have a problem with drug, alcohol or whatever, whatever the substance is and still have all those things. I think I was expecting that. Well, I didn't I didn't know a lot and I didn't know what I didn't know, but I, to me, it was an epiphany to quit while I was ahead. Like I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was struggling and I was having so much fear and anxiety over what was my bottom going to be? Like I had this, you know, misconception, this, the, the movie, um, based understanding, I guess, of uh, pop culture understanding of recovery that you had to hit, hit rock bottom and then you get sober. I think that's a cliche that lots of people hear. And we hear it in sobriety all the time. People say that. So I thought, well, I haven't hit rock, rock, rock bottom yet. I guess I'll keep drinking. And, you know, part of that's your addiction, leveraging, you're misunderstanding it. And part of it was, you know, just not knowing better. So when I had the 
epiphany to just quit. Like, wait, I'm spending all this time terrified of what rock bottom's going to be, and I don't want it to happen, but I can't seem to stop, you know, I can't seem to control this. Um, what if I just quit? What if I don't wait till rock bottom? And that was, um, like that to me, it was, seemed brilliant. (laughs) And, uh, but it was also the thing that made me fear that, well, maybe then I can't go into a 12 step meeting. They might tell me I'm not bad enough. I have to go out and, you know, keep, keep waiting for rock bottom, but that's ridiculous. I mean, that just doesn't happen. No one doesn't feel ridiculous at the time. No, it didn't. So what I did instead was I, uh, I'm, um, at the time was in the home building industry and did a lot of writing and um, PR stuff, TV, radio. So I thought, well, you know what? I'll start a blog. I'll start a secret blog about my recovery. I'll kind of document what this is like because I thought, okay, terminal uniqueness. I thought, um, this is really interesting, you know? Like, I'm not some horrible drunk like I'm really high functioning and this be people will be really interested to hear how I do this so I'll blog about it and I didn't think anyone would read the blog but I thought it would be a place to kind of keep my keep the story together and I thought maybe after get this three months or so I knew I was quitting for forever but I thought maybe the big change would be over within a few months and um and then I could maybe like write an article or something about it and I thought that would be very interesting. So uh, that's when I started Unpickled. My first day of sobriety, I started this blog called Unpickled and was just writing about what I was going through, what what detox was like at home. I didn't know how unsafe it was to detox unsupervised. Um, and I wasn't giving advice or anything. I was just documenting what it was like to go through this. And... Um, and also what it was like to be so scared and secretive. I didn't tell my husband at first. He didn't know for the first couple of weeks. I was the same way. For the first month or two, I was afraid to tell my wife. Yeah. So I were you the same way then that you didn't want to tell them because you didn't want to get talked out of it? Yes. That yeah. was a lot of the issue is. I had an ex-girlfriend who was posting on Facebook that she was not drinking anymore. And I reached out to her and I had a therapist and I wanted to talk to my therapist about it. And the thing I was afraid of is my therapist would either say, yes, you have a problem, which would have been unacceptable to hear. Or no, I don't think you have a problem, which would have been unacceptable to hear as well, because (laughs) it would be so embarrassing. Both would be embarrassing in two different ways. And thank God. He said he didn't give me an answer at all. And he just asked some questions and he said, well, this is for you to decide. Why don't you go to a meeting? Just go to a few meetings and see. No big deal. And that's kind of what helped me. And that's kind of what my ex-girlfriend said, too. And I didn't want to hear it. Of well, Why don't you just go to a meeting and see? Yeah. See how it feels. Yeah. You don't really have to make a decision immediately. Yeah. Well, and you know that I think a lot of people don't realize that, that you're, you're welcome to come to a meeting and see if it's for you. And I. I didn't actually end up making use of 12-step supports until I was actually eight years sober. And I went to a women's meeting locally and just said, can I just come for the friendship? Because I have made all these friends online that are doing, you know, this more self-managed form of recovery. And I've been going to yoga retreats. I have friends all over the world. Literally, I could go just about anywhere in the world and meet up with someone who I've connected with online. But in my own community, it was this void for me. So um, on my eighth sober anniversary, I went to a local women's 12-step meeting and, um, and said, you know, is it okay for me to come in and celebrate my birthday with you guys? And, and here's the funny thing. This is a huge ego check for me. They said, oh, sure. Are you newly sober? <laughs> like they'd never seen me before. So not only here, I was so afraid, like big shot in my community that everyone would know who I was. They didn't know who I was. And then also in terms of, you know, being uh, a podcaster with, you know, an international podcast and a blog and all, you know, quite well known in the online arena in, in those rooms, they didn't even know, like they didn't know who I was and they, they didn't care. No, every once in a while I've mentioned this podcast. And it never gets any traction. I could mention it a few times, and some people might be interested and want to come on, but for the most part, they couldn't care less. 
Yeah. It, That's like all you do like in a little podcast. Tell people who are normal that you don't drink and you have an alcohol problem and there's always that fear that oh people are gonna what are they gonna say they're gonna treat me different and then it turns out that they're not even listening to you and they don't even remember my (laughs) father-in-law does not remember at all and offers me alcohol all the time yeah nobody cares because it's kind of like trying to keep track of i don't know like your kids allergies or who their favorite author is or whatever right you're like you know it and it matters to you but it's kind of slippery information because it it's not often you know essential to other people so i I think there's that and i don't know if you guys experience this at all but i feel a little bit that for some family members, like my family of origin, I think there's also a little resistance to it because I think maybe um, partly because they kind of have us in a box of who they feel we are and what we what we should and shouldn't do. And, and um, maybe there's also a little fear about about finding out, you know, that maybe they have some accountability that that they don't want or that they're uncomfortable with. So um, which probably wouldn't be the case if they ever listened in they'd probably be quite pleasantly surprised but I feel like it seems to be a no-go zone so why did it take uh, you eight years in order to come into a 12-step program or at least investigate a 12-step program well you know my recovery was going really well mm-hmm. um I um I think I was finding what I needed through okay. online supports and um yeah, I, fu- I think I felt like everything was going well. But what I was kind of missing was friends, like mm-hmm. locally, closer to home. And um, I think... More or less people you identify with, with the, with this, with the alcohol. Yeah. Well, you be, uh, being sober, being abstinent. There was, yeah. there was You were missing that personal connection uh, with other people. Yeah, the fellowship aspect. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really realize that I would be welcome at a 12-step meeting for the sole purpose of fellowship. So I was actually at a women's yoga retreat for women in recovery in Mexico, which I'd been going to every year. And um, someone there was talking about her 12-step group and asked me if I went. And I said, no, no, I didn't get sober through 12-step. And she goes, well, don't you just go? Like, just Oh, I was saying, I wish I had someone I could just go for coffee with or go for a walk with. And she said, we'll go to a 12-step meeting and, you know, you'll be welcome there. Just tell them straight up that I'm just here for fellowship and make sure that that's okay with them. And um, that just never occurred to me. I just didn't know that that would be quite so welcomed. And, um, yeah, it, it was... I mean, I wished I had done it sooner. It's not like when you go somewhere and they're trying to sell you a timeshare. <laughs> you, you don't get the sales pitch on the timeshare by minute 55. The right. only, if you're brand new and you're in Gene's position, and there's got to be tons of you like that, because I see people like that on Instagram all the time. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. It's not a desire to work the steps. It's not a desire to be the chairman or the treasurer or to be everybody's sponsor. If you've got a desire to stop drinking and you just want to go hang out and sit next to somebody and listen to stories and then go out for a coffee afterwards with somebody, that's completely acceptable to do. And if you do that for eight years and then you decide after that, you might want to work some steps. That's okay, too. Well, here's the thing, you guys, though. This is I think that there's something so unique about recovery circles of any almost any stripe that doesn't happen in the rest of the world. That is the part that I did not understand for a long time. That was like, you know, if you... Um, if you... If you buy, I don't know, I drive a, I drive a Ford. So... Um, I'm not going to go to like a Chev fan club in my fort, you know, like, and I, I think that, um, like I grew up going to church and I went to a religious school and like you have a religion, that's your, that's your brand or a denomination of, you know, whatever your religion is. And, and so like, you kind of like, you pick a team and you are invested in that and that's what, that's what you do. And I didn't realize that in recovery, and you know, I think you know this kind of originated with AA, and it's so special, is the idea that come 
and take what you can use and leave the rest. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to sit next to someone. You know, I was at a meeting just last night. I was sitting next to someone who was all in, all the way, all the things, all the steps, all the committees, all the, like, it is her life in all ways. And she was saying how this works so good for her and this is the way to do it. And anyone who wants her to be their sponsor, this is how she tells them to do it. I'm sitting right next to her. And I've been going to joining their meetings for several years. I haven't read the big book. I'm sorry. Haven't done it. Doesn't appeal to me. I respect it. I know it helps people. I can contribute to conversations about it. I've read, I've interviewed someone who wrote the history of it, but like I, I'm in at a very different level than she is and that's okay. And that's all welcome. And there's this, there's just this level of respect for, um, where using it, how it works for you and meeting each other where you're at and staying on your own side of the street. And I think so much of the rest of the world is not only a kind of a meritocracy, but also like, a um, climbing the ladder, you know, um, doing more and more and becoming more involved and more uh, accredited and accomplished and expert and blah, blah, blah. And, um, to, to be welcomed into an arena where we're all doing this same thing, this sobriety thing, to but with some kind of internal accountability or internal um, perspective on how we choose to use this framework and at the same time not judging how anyone else uses it and still being able to learn from each other and respect each other, um, that is like mind-blowing to me. That has changed my life to be of this mindset now. And, you know, I I think that I I didn't just learn this going into an AA meeting. It came to me over time, over the last 10 plus years of interviewing people and uh, writing a blog and hearing a lot of people talk about their recovery and slowly absorbing this mindset and realizing like, wow, this, is a, this isn't just a great way to exist as a sober person. This is a great way to live your life. And I think that I had spent so much of my life trying to be good, trying to be right, trying to be better, trying to be safe and, and trying to like feel safe by being um, through approval and acceptance and, um, you know, the gold stars and the people pleasing and all of that, that this was really a revelation to not be so judgmental of myself, not be judgmental of others. And um, instead of kind of positioning myself like, well, who's good, better, best, and how do I get to the top, to just say, like, I'm not judging anyone else and I'm not judging myself, but I'm working on this. I'm in process and so are you. And so instead of seeing someone's flaws and then latching on to that of like, oh, I see a weakness in them. That makes me better than them. That makes me, you know, I'm going to leverage that and feel good about myself. And I'm going to like make sure that I never forget that thing that I saw about them. You know, that that weakness that I caught a glimpse of. I'm never going to forget that about that person. Yeah, there's some, in, in reco- what I have found in recovery is that first, well, we'll just go f- five to 10 years. I'm still figuring out who I am and what I want to <laughs> be. I mean, I, you know, I'm trying to stay sober. I'm trying to live this sober life. I'm trying to absorb all this information. I'm trying to rewrite old tapes that are telling me to do something other than what I hear in meetings. And then, you know, years through 10 through 20, where, you know, kind of figuring things out and kind of in, in a um, testing mode, you know, does, you know, how, what's the longevity of this, you know, um, and, 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 evolving and getting more into the spirituality aspect of the program. Then 20 to 30, it's like I'm in overdrive, cruise control. Um, Sobriety has now become a way of life. It's now deep ingrained into me that that's who I am as a person. I no longer have to think about being sober. That's just part of what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's interesting that, you know, um, you know, you, you got sober around 2010, if I do, if my math is correct, um, that is when, well, I'll call it Alcoholics Anonymous 
is anonymous. We're supposed to be anonymous. We're not supposed to. We're supposed to hide our identity uh, because people think poorly of us. Um, right around 2010, it started to break out to where people were no longer ashamed of being sober or being in recovery. They'd come right out and say, "Well, we're we don't drink because we're in recovery." I had I had a young couple neighbor neighbors of ours, a young couple. They they came right out. Right out and said, "No, we're, we're going to have a." They said, "We're going to have a party over to the house uh, on on Saturday. You're welcome to come over. Um, there's not going to be any alcohol because we're in recovery." And I looked at them. I go, "Wow, that's bold." <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was because you know, I was just, I came, I came from the school that we don't, you don't tell anybody. Um, that is for that's a private thing that you just tell people. If you're trying to carry the message, you know, and I told him, I said, I've been sober for 20 something years already. So, you know, welcome <laughs> type of thought. But it's 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 I find that interesting that, um, you know, you were there at that time getting sober and trying to figure this stuff out in an online environment, which is. At that time, it was brand new. There wasn't a yeah. lot of online recovery. There was chat rooms, um, but there was, you know. Not a lot, not a lot there. I mean, some podcasts, yeah, very not even a ton, yeah. And now, I mean, we have everything, you know. And AA doesn't hold a monopoly on recovery. I mean, they they use it as a gold standard because it's been around for so long and it's worked so effectively for people. Uh, But there are other ways to get sober, and if it works for you, and you can stay sober on it, go for it. You know, Mm -hmm. and nobody's gonna and. And nobody is going to judge you just like you said. You walk into those rooms, and I've never found this in any other organization, whether it's a an activity um, or business uh, uh, business thing. You're, no matter where you go, you're being judged. In a 12-step recovery program, everybody accepts you for who you are. Mm-hmm. And it's just and, no and where you're question. At. Yeah. They yeah. Don't, they, like it, Matt said, they don't care. And I, I love this idea of like, if I, wherever you're at today, you're in recovery. You're not going to be there tomorrow. Right. You know, whatever you're struggling with or whatever my imperfections are, your imperfections. Like, I trust that we're all working on that. And so, gosh, it's made me like so much more patient with people because mm-hmm. I used to just be like, oh, that person's so annoying. All they do is X, Y, Z. But you know, now when you kind of think, well, that's where they're at today, but I don't know, they might not be like that next time I see them. They might have dealt with that. Or maybe I will have dealt with whatever it is in me that makes me annoyed by that. We're both going to be different next time we see each other. And that's awesome. Right. It's made being a jerk to people, which I used to love doing. It took all, much like people say when I had a relapse, it took the fun out of drinking. AA has taken the fun out of being a jerk to people. They're still a jerk. A I, you get it all the time. Don't give me that crap. I'm not as bad as I once was. I think twice now. I do. I think twice. And I don't, even when I know it's like in good fun, I'm like, I start thinking about it that I'm not as, I, I could be mean spirited in the past. Yeah. But that's the thing. It's helped me in business. The whole idea that I'm going to be less judgmental and open to, it, it's an empathy thing. Mm hmm. And it's yeah. one of the issues I have when I see a lot of stuff on Twitter, especially nowadays, the way Twitter is with the new management. I look at that and I'm like, I can't live that lifestyle. It's, it is against what my program is and it could lead me to drink. And, you know, empathy is in a, it's at a premium nowadays. So I'd rather be doing something that other people aren't be special that way. Yeah. It's special to be nice to people because it's in fashion to be a prick. Yeah, you know, I think you want to be nice for the right reasons. And, and sometimes you do need to be um, unpleasant, and that needs to be for the right reasons, too. I think I was, you know, I was very nice, but it was for my own ends. Because when you're people-pleasing, you're really just kind of manipulating people. You're, yep. you're trying to make people like you. You're trying to make people um, accept you and um, you think you're being nice or you think you're being helpful, but you, you end up, I ended up anyway, spending a lot of time being really annoyed because I'm doing all these things for all these people and blah, 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 blah. And nobody, blah, 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 you know, the whole, they don't appreciate me. They don't appreciate me. And then, so then you can go into the whole story of look how, look how much I do for others and look how unappreciated I am. And, um, 
it, just to learn that that's not good. That's not good for me to do that. And it's not nice and it's not kind. And, um, and that it's coming from a place of, of, um, insecurity, not kindness. And that how, um, other people, how I feel about other people has a lot to do with how I feel about me. Because as soon as you stop being so judgmental of others or stop being a jerk to others, you stop kind of bracing for it to come back at you. Mm. You stop thinking that other people are probably thinking this about me because you're just, you're not in that headspace anymore. It's such a relief. Like, I think I've, I was wound up pretty tight a lot of the time. And, um, I think too, um, well, I had a lot of secrets you know, I mean, first of all, you're, I was using alcohol to like cover the insecurities that I didn't want anyone to see. So that was secret number one. Then secret number two is how much I drink. And secret number three is that I can't quit drinking. And, and, you know, and then there's, it's just, it just compounds. So, so there's so much freedom and in not having to deal with any of that. And when you can just heal and become so much more authentic, it, life is just so much easier. It just it's just infinitely easier. How has this affected the family? So I know my uh, my uh, irrational fear, maybe it's not irrational. My fear having an alcohol problem is what's going to happen to my 14-year-old 10 and 8 when they're old enough to grab alcohol. And I think about what do I need to do to protect them, which I can't do. That's my terrifying fear if I don't want them to have my fate. How mm. what's the family dynamic? Um, my, I have three sons and, um, I've been married for 33 years. So, um, and my sons are all in their late twenties, early thirties now and three grandsons too. Mm. So they were teenagers when I quit drinking and, um, and really they didn't, they were unaware. I mean, they, they, they were, they didn't realize that I was struggling but you did a good job hiding. I did, but but you know, I also normalized like I normalized that overachieving um un, like insatiable drive for approval and achievement and um and I th- I think what they what was normal for them was, you know, like I don't think I was very pleasant or present. Mm. And um so they feel like they were relatively unaffected by it, but it really bothered me that this was the normal that I had set for them. So I'm really glad that I, um, I think that the, it's subtle, like the way that recovery has influenced our family is subtle, but I do think that it has had a huge impact on our family in a very positive way. Um, and the reason I say it's subtle is because, you know, there weren't like these big, um, rips to repair the the way that is more obvious in a family that you know maybe that has had some um more extreme incidents as a as you know between the parent child dynamic but i think that those subtle things are um in some ways you know they're harder to suss out and heal so what I see in my sons is that they're all married and they all have really great relationships with their partners. So I feel like that's a positive thing because um, I love the way that I see them treat each other uh, as, as in their primary relationships, uh, with their kids, with each other as brothers and as sister-in-laws. Um, so that whole family dynamic is really good. And I feel like that is something that we set the tone for as parents uh, grandparents, whatever, you know, it's, I think that, um, I feel like that my willingness to be, um, uh, accountable and my availability to them is, uh, I think that that resonates throughout the family. And I'm really proud of that. That was actually one of the big drives for me to quit drinking was that, um, my son had gotten married just before I quit drinking my oldest son, and I was 43 at the time. Uh, we talked about this before we came to air, but I got married in my 20s, and then my son got married uh, when he was 19. So, you know, we're, I'm kind of young in this game. Uh, but um, it's the conversation of, Gene, how can you be a grandmother? You don't look <laughs> old enough to be a grandmother. I know. <laughs> Why, thank you. Um, 
but uh, I remember, remember alcohol is a preservative too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think that um, I I do think actually just you know it's a great beauty tip to not drink. Like it really is. It really does help us age better. Um, but when my son got married, I remember struggling so hard that day because um, I was drinking every day and kind of perfectly timing the blackout to when I would go to sleep at night. And that works great as long as you stick to a schedule. But on a day like a wedding, you know, where you're up early and you're doing all these things and and then the um, the event was going on longer and longer and longer. And, you know, all I really wanted to do was just grab all those bottles of wine and go home and drink. But there was people there and there was all this cleanup to do. And I, we were hosting, you know, this event. And um, so I was really feeling the discomfort of what I now know was withdrawal mm-hmm. <laughs> and alcohol cravings as the withdrawal symptoms, you know, is the time where I would normally start drinking rolled past and I wasn't getting my usual intake. My body was starting to holler for it. And so that showed up as like anxiety and being upset. And so I remember being at this wedding and just feeling really gross, but also thinking, Oh my gosh, these young people are going to have a baby someday, you know, in the next few years and no one should leave a baby with me. Like I, that bothered me so much to think that I, I, here, I, I wouldn't be a grandma that could babysit. If they knew how much I drank, no one would leave a child in my care. So you're talking a lot around, I don't have a really low bottom. I'm pretty functional. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. But if we look at the mental torment, torment in your brain, that's a pretty low bottom yeah. of all of this thought that the first thing you think of, you're not thinking about the joy of your son's wedding. It's this booze is all around. I would rather drink it somewhere else. I'm resentful of the re, of the responsibility. And, oh, my God, if they knew who I really was, I wouldn't even be able to have a grandchild stay over because I'm such a mess. Yeah. These are all the things going on in your head. That's If you look at that, that's it's one hell of a low bottom yeah. in it, some really. way. You're so it's so true. And, it, and that, you know, that wasn't an isolated incident. I mean, we carry that burden all the time. When we're in active addiction, you know, there's a few hours in the morning where, you know, once the Tylenol kicked in and I started feeling like myself, there was a couple hours of every day where I had this hope where I think like today's going to be the day I'm going to quit drinking today. And then by the afternoon, I'd start to, you know, make bargains with myself. Well, I can't quit drinking today. This, this, there's no way today's not going to be the day. And, and then it would start like, then you start going into that Oh, it was just an obsession all the time. It was like dragging, you know, a, a, a bag of cement everywhere you went. This just this huge weight and burden and preoccupation, constant preoccupation with alcohol. And you're right. That's it is so tragic when you think about being at something as joyful as a wedding and to, to only be thinking about myself and the ticker tape of addictive thoughts that were going through my head and I just missed out on so much of my own life. That's sad. And I, I would say, you know, the, the real bottom for me, if I, when I think about what the worst part of it was, was something that I couldn't even intellectualize or vocalize at that time. And it was that I 100% believed that, um, that I was, uh, an unworthy, unlovable, uh, un, un, um, I don't, I don't even know. Just, a, I was just a piece of garbage masquerading mm. as a human being right. and that somehow I'd managed to fool my husband all these years and he was going to figure it out and leave me and that my sons would figure it out and that they would stop loving me. Like, wow, that's 12 years sober and I'm, it still hits me. I think that's my bottom, really. And I didn't even know I was there. It's only after we start to heal and I realize, oh my God, this was my core truth that I lived with. This is what I was drinking. To to try to numb was the pain of believing that I was so unlovable that my own family would abandon me. And, um, you know, I'm happy to report that, <laughs> that when you um, when you get out of addiction and and free yourself from being numb all the time and um 
being busy, um, accommodating that, um, then you start to have the capacity to work on this stuff and to heal and, um, uh, and, and to just show up for your life. And, you know, then my other two sons got married after I was sober and their weddings were completely wonderful events. I mean, I'm just showing up a hundred percent for everything. And to know that, um, my family can call me anytime and I'm not going to be drunk. You know, I'm not, I can, I can get in the car and come to you wherever you are. You need a ride to the hospital because your kid is sick that I'm your girl. I might be tired. I might look terrible. I might be grumpy, but I will be sober and I will be there. (laughs) That's like so wonderful to, to, to offer that to my family. And, um, I think to know that, um, I've modeled this, this way of living of be fearless about, looking inside and and healing what you can and don't be too proud to to say hmm, maybe there's a different way I could look at this my way might not be the only way um, and there might be more than one way of doing this and maybe more than one of those is going to work but I'm going to pick one and try this for a while and see how this works for me and um, I think I was just so invested in being right I was trying to be good. I was trying to be right. I was trying to do things right. And then anyone that didn't agree with me or follow my lead or approve of me, you know, they were rejecting my rightness. So then I had to be in opposition to them or um, heal the, like, or deal with the um, feeling of being rejected. Um, and to, to be free of that is, gosh, there's a lot more time for doing things like writing books and talking to new friends and um, traveling yeah. and, you know, just living, which is what we're supposed to be doing here. Right. Living life. Yeah. Go figure. <laughs> if we were to just take all the alcohol references out for somebody who's new and I was just to cut up you talking about yourself and the mental anguish you went through and the people pleasing and the judging I think we would be able to still identify with you as having an alcohol problem without ever talking about the alcohol. Because in the end, it's not really about the alcohol. It's about solving that other stuff is where alcohol comes in. Uh-huh. That's where I'm sitting listening. I'm like, I can identify to everything you're saying, not the, not the drink. I don't even know what you were drinking. And I identify with the people pleasing and the mental gymnastics and the not being present all of that and the judging and the manipulating. Oh man, that's, that's great stuff. That's why that saying of, um, oh boy, alcohol is just, drinking is just a symptom. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's just a symptom. There's a yeah. reason why we drink. Yeah. Um, and you know, most, I have a, I have a yeah, sister. We discover that and everything changes. Yeah. And we have so much shame around the drinking, but honestly, like some people are eating their way through this. Some are shopping, some are achieving. You know, I was as as addicted to achievement as I was to alcohol. I I have a sister who is like knitting is her, is her crack. (laughs) (laughs) She's addicted to yarn and knitting and like she numbs out with knitting. So, you know, I mean, that's, it's not as harmful as drinking. I think in some ways... Um, I think, well, maybe I'm the lucky one because drinking forced me to confront the pain I was numbing. And um, people that are choosing other ways to cope that are maybe a little bit less self-destructive or that don't like take on a trajectory that forces them to confront it by, by, you know, unraveling them in some way. Ooh, knitting joke, no pun intended. Um, that, That maybe they are able to continue in their dysfunction and they don't have this joy of healing or something else has to, you know, bring it, bring the healing to them in some other way that it makes it a little harder. So, you know, when we hear people say I'm a grateful alcoholic, I know there's a lot of us that kind of like roll our eyes a little bit, especially at first when you're like, Oh, what does that even mean? Or, you know, stop, you're not, but you start to realize like, no, what they're grateful for is that they're, they're grateful for the recovery that it brought them right, because right. It, it, it brought them to this place of healing. And, um, yeah, I think that's a wonderful thing. And I don't know if you're familiar with Don Nickel and she recovers in that whole movement, but, um, they say, um, 
we're all in recovery from something and the process of healing looks the same no matter what you're recovering from. So they say, you know, their, their philosophy is like, you can get people together in a sharing circle that are recovering from eating disorders and drug addiction and gambling and sex, whatever your ism is, um, because we're all going to be in process. I, uh, my, part of my addiction now is my crack is trying to build this podcast and I was in my addiction last night trying to build a brand new Squarespace style, Squarespace website, and it was not going well. Oh, and no. I was deep in my addiction there. <laughs> and you're not going away because you have the unpickled books and you're writing and stuff. But you have the bubble hour and you're not going to do it anymore. And this baffles me as somebody who's trying to grow a newer podcast. Mm -hmm. What's up with that? Yeah. I'm glad you asked. Um well, here's a couple things. I, right from the beginning with this, with this podcast, um, I didn't start the bubble hour. It was started by some women in Boston and, um, and I joined in season two or three as a co-host when one of them left the show and then I joined and, um, it was very small in the beginning and, um, we didn't, we, at that time in 2012, we didn't have this on-screen stuff. We were literally on landlines phoning into <laughs> someone was on a website, you know, bringing us all together, but we couldn't see each other. So it was literally like just eavesdropping on four people on the phone. So that was kind of had its own charm, you know? Um, but right from the beginning, uh, I think I was just two years sober when I started on uh, co-hosting that podcast and I was enough into my recovery to know the dangers of ego and to also to have enough self-awareness to know that achievement and an addiction to achievement had really um, uh, been a negative thing for me so I thought if I'm going to do this I have to do it in a way that is um, not attached to um, me feeling approval and ego and I can't take a competitive perspective on this and I should say for the first couple years of my blog I was I was anonymous I didn't um, even show my face or I think I showed my first name and at some point after two years I did show my picture and I kind of came out little by little so by the time I was doing the podcast I was just starting to um, recover out loud, as we sometimes say. And um, because I wasn't in a 12-step program, I felt like, well, I might be a good person to do this because part of the reason for anonymity is because no one should be a spokesperson for the AA program. That's part of that. And so it's not that you can't tell people you're in recovery. It's that you know, they don't want poster children for this program. Right. So I'm not in that program, so I don't have that concern. And also, um, I was retiring um, from my business, so I thought, well, I don't have the career concerns, and this is kind of all online, and amazingly, like, the only people that are finding it even know that I'm doing it are people that are like-minded anyway. Mm -hmm. So uh, I felt like that was kind of a safe thing. So uh, I grew uh, along with this podcast. Uh, the bubble hour and we would phone in every Sunday night and talk for an hour and podcasting was new in 2012 was I think the first year that it had showed up on people's iPhones as an app so you prior to that you would have to like download it to an iPod right there was that extra step but now That's people what I used could, to do I, yeah. I listen to podcasts from like the middle of the 2000s and I would run to my computer in the morning I would download what I wanted and I'd go to the gym yeah, right. Early adopter. Yeah. So this this was like a whole new, um, this was where things really started taking off for podcasts because now it was so much easier for people to get it, to stream it. I mean, even just the idea of like using your data to stream um, uh, content was, you know, that was a new mindset for people. Like they, that, the to budget for it, to have enough data attached to your phone yeah. plan. So. Uh, the, that also really spiked the show. So uh, I'm making this a much longer story. Sorry, this is this is part of my problem. This is why I usually ask questions instead of no, answering them. You keep going. I, I like hearing it. <laughs> so um, all this to say that I really went into it thinking I'm doing this for service because it's really good for me. I was kind of lonely in my recovery, so this was a way for me to connect with other people. 
And I was very mindful of this is not about me. And this show has a life of its own. Its success is due to the listeners and the guests and the hosts and and then something more, like some other kind of magic sprinkly dust that it had a life of its own. So I felt like I was kind of a cog in in the machine and I was I was doing my part, but I was doing a part that really I felt anyone could show up and do what I was doing. It wasn't, you know, like I was some kind of superstar or um, felt really ego-driven in my role. So uh, around year four was when um, there was four of us co-hosting and everybody got busy that year. And we had to say like, well, what you guys, all, you, you'll hit this yourselves too, right? what's the end game for this? Like you're so busy planning how to grow it and how to do it and how fun it is. At some point you're like, oh my gosh, how do we know when this has run its course? How do we, how do we end it? Like, does it just fizzle out at some point? Are we going to go to 200 episodes? Do we want to go to five years? Do we want to just keep bringing in new co-hosts? Like, how does this, how does, how does this end? We're going to have to figure this out at some point. And, um, it kind of came to a head that year because two of the co-hosts had gotten promoted and another co-host was going through a divorce and it just wasn't, was becoming very hard to make uh, all of us show up at the same time and have the same kind of space for it that we'd had the previous years. And then um, I was retiring and things were changing in my life. And so then we said, uh, I said, you know what, if you guys are okay with it, I'll take it on my own and I'll just run with it as a solo host and I'll just do this for a little while. I've got some time. This would be great for me. And it's much easier for one person to do it than for four co-hosts and a guest, you know, to all try and coordinate. So at that point, I took it and ran with it on my own, but still trusting, okay, this can't be an ego thing. This can't be a gene thing. And I have to listen to my gut when my gut says it's time to end or when the show tells me that it's run its natural course, I have to listen to that. I can't let my ego keep me doing this longer than what's good. And um, so that was 2016. And every once in a while, I would just do this gut check. Is it time yet? Nope, it's not time yet. It still feels right. I still feel good. I'm in the right headspace. I have the energy for it. It's working. People are listening. And so I just kept going. And then this year... Um, the show was growing exponentially because the backlist was so large. And I think because we were, I continued to be very consistent in terms of the message and the tone. And, um, so it wasn't going off madly in all directions. I wasn't trying all kinds of new things. I was just, you know, showing up and holding space and letting people tell their stories then this year started to roll around and I started to feel like, you know what? I think I'm starting to feel like I'm, wasn't, I was tired of it, but I just felt like I was, um, full. Like I was feeling like I'd hit my capacity. I was starting to have trouble remembering what guest I'd had on the previous week. I was starting to like lose brain space for all the information and all the stories and then um, the stats, every time I'd log on, I'd see the stats and we hit 4 million downloads. Oh and goodness. I thought, yeah, that's a nice round number, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. And then I thought season 10 is coming up. That's a nice round number. And my heart is telling me that I'm starting to run out of gas. And then I thought, okay, do I hand this off to someone else? Do we keep this going? But in the meantime, the landscape has changed so much. There weren't other resources. Now there are. And people weren't talking as openly about recovery. And now there's the whole Instagram thing, I mean, and TikTok. And there's just all of these other places where people can get this nourishment. Is there still a need for this? So I thought, I want to end it while it's good. I want to end strong. And I don't want to just fizzle out and start to become kind of, you know... I don't want to kind of half-ass this, I guess. And um, so that was that was my decision was I, it just felt right. And it just, in a, in a minute, I knew. You know, I was crawling into bed one night and I just, I just felt it instantly. I'm done. It's time to be done. Um, I'm going to wrap this up. And um, so what I did for season 10, instead of doing one last season of interviews, I took all 350 hours of audio, a decade's worth of content, 
I transcribed it all, I went through it all, and I built a 10-part documentary about the history of the show. Did you do and, that yourself? Yeah, I oh did. Oh my goodness. Uh, it so took me a uh, year. As a guy who does the editing for this and has done things like that, I, I can't even imagine that work. It was so much work. Thank you for saying that because, you know, most people don't know. It's kind of like when you cook a big meal and your family eats it in five minutes and you're like, that took me two days to cook. This no, took me like a year and a half. A whole to day and looking down and I have 15 minutes. I have 15 minutes of audio that I spent all day oh, putting together because it, it's like, okay, I'm going to go through this. But here's the three minutes that really makes the most, but I've got to go through to find the three minutes and then I got to take the three minutes and I've got to take it out and I got to put it in. Oh, I can just so see it. The work you must have done. I'm in awe. Yeah. Thank you. It was a ton of work and it, I wanted it to be, um, I wanted it to be beautiful and moving and I wanted to give the listeners what they deserved. Like I wanted to thank them by giving them something so beautiful to listen to. I wanted the other co-hosts to feel just as honored and um, celebrated through it as myself, even though I was, you know, on the show for like three times as long as anyone else, but I didn't want to be like, it's all about me because it was so much, you know, as I started to work on this, I really saw the arc and I, and a story emerged. And so really, if there's anyone listening who doesn't care about the bubble hour and doesn't want to go back and listen to 10 years of old phone calls of people talking to each other, listen to season 10, listen to those 10 episodes because it, it's a story into itself. And I'm so proud of it. And then as I was going through all that content, I realized, okay, I've taken 350 hours and boiled it down into like 10 but I'm leaving so much out. So then a book emerged. So I also created a book called Take Good Care, which were, those were the words I signed off with at the end of every show. And so I thought, well, I can also then offer our listeners this book that has all of these readings about other little nuggets from the show. And that's another way that they can, you know, take a keepsake from this chapter of, of the, the story of this sort of recovery movement that we're all part of. And then, um, here's something we haven't mentioned yet, and then I decided, you know what, I'm also going to start a spinoff podcast. So it's called Tiny Bubbles. I've aired two episodes so far, and what I've done is just kind of dipped into the archives, and instead of being a bubble hour, it's just 15 minutes, and it's it's uh, a couple of clips from old shows and a little bit of more current recovery kind of news, and I'll often read a poem maybe from my book of recovery poetry or talk about something that I've learned this week. And so that's just like a, a quick version of the bubble hour. So that's now, um, that's been launched and that is, is going. And so I'll, I'll do that for a little while, but not for forever. It's just a way to kind of keep the um, content revolving and fresh. And um, it's a way for me to kind of keep giving service too, because I really do, I do like being in this space. And I've learned so much about editing and building and, and there's just all of this content. I mean, what do you do with all of this content? It costs money to keep it on air. Yes. And I don't think people realize that. Like, uh, that's out of my pocket. We, I don't uh, have any advertising on the show aside from, like, advertising the Bubble Hour book and our mm -hmm. Patreon. Um, so this that's just started. So that I thought, you know, after all these years and thousands of dollars that um, I've contributed out of my own pocket, I'm quite happy to say, if you want this to continue, help me out. And um, let's make it available together. And I think people are happy to contribute. They just most people just don't know that it costs money to keep a podcast going. Um, never mind your own time, or you know the 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 equipment that you need, or um, the I don't know maybe the therapy that you need to, <laughs> to keep yourself uh, in check and, and fresh for for the show, but. Anyway, that's what's happening. That's I hope that answered your question. I feel like I meandered all over the place. No, you didn't. And that was such an adult and such a good recovery reason to stop doing it because it was the opposite of what got you in trouble, where you were kind of the egomaniac and the hard driver, and I've got to be the best at the best and number one, and I have to be the people pleaser. It could very easily be the people pleaser thing because the audience kind of grows beyond your control. Now it's this thing that people rely on each week. So you could feel sucked into, I have to keep doing this because of the audience. Yeah. No, you don't. Yeah. And the feeling of, well, I've done my service. 
it's okay to stop doing this. Yeah. And have this feeling of, well, I could edit down some old episodes for 15 minutes. You know, a lot of people who are, I put, I was sick last week. I put a rerun up last week. Somebody reached out and said last week's was like the best episode that I've heard in a while. And I didn't have the, I didn't have the, the heart to say you were listening to a rerun. I didn't even <laughs> notice that. And it did well. Well, I, I, I'm amazed at like this morning I was listening to, um, the next two tiny bubble episodes that I'm going to be putting out. And I, I record, I like built them a couple weeks ago. I listened to them this morning and it was like hearing them for the first time. And I'm the one who made them. I mean, it's my voice. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, okay, well, if this can be fresh to me, certainly, you know, the listeners can, can find that enjoyment in it too. Here's the other thing, you guys, we could, we could spend the next 50 years building podcasts, but people are going to stop like podcasting is going to stop being a thing the same way that like silent movies aren't a thing anymore. And I know that at 55, I don't want to go start a TikTok channel and start (laughs) figuring that out. It's just not where I'm meant to be. People are getting a lot of good recovery resources there. And there's, you know, other people are doing great work in that arena. It's not for me. So I know that I, I've got a skill set. I've used it well. But that this, this kind of, um, like this era of, that we're in is moving along. And um, so if we get too hooked into feeling important and validated by doing this, we're in trouble. Like, uh, and... I want to come back to what John said earlier is like, you kind of get to these other stages of recovery. So what I was really starting to feel is that I just want to live my recovery now. Like I, um, have a family member who's like got quite a serious illness and, uh, a very young to have this. And I just want to be with him, you know, just to, just to sit. I just want to be available when he calls. Um, I don't, I just, I want to create the space where I can just live my recovery. And um, because I feel like I am kind of in another chapter of it. And it really gives me a lot of like peace in a way to hear you have said earlier, John, like, and then, you know, your, your 20 to 30 is like, you know, kind of another phase of it. And I, I want to be ready for that too as each of these new stages arrive, I don't want to be so hooked into what I was doing in year two of my recovery that I'm missing what I've kind of leveled up to now at this stage. So I think it's it's like, it takes a lot of work to stay present and pay attention to where we're at and really honor that. And sometimes that means walking away from like things that are going really well and, um, uh, and detaching from, you know, what could be seen as kind of, the height of success or, um, you know, oh, great, now I got what I wanted, now what? I mean, the irony is that all that time that I was people-pleasing and and achieving, as soon as I achieved something, there was no satisfaction in it. Right. It was like fling and on to the next thing because I didn't feel worthy. And now, like, I have just so celebrated the, the magic of all the milestones that the bubble hour has gone through and every message that I get from people saying, wow, like season 10 is like amazing. It's different. And I think it was unexpected to people when they tuned in and thought they were going to, you know, just hear the same interviews that I'd been doing all these years to hear this other thing that now had background music and uh, was more like something you'd hear on NPR or here in Canada, CBC, like it was more like a radio documentary um to hear people that they felt the gift that that was to them gosh that just so lands with me in a way that I couldn't have felt before I know I never really felt my success or achievement before yeah, you, so it's beautiful you leave the tapestry yeah oh that that was like such a kick for me of of the ego stuff that I've got to work on just hearing that I'm like god damn it she went and just hit me between the eyes with something I got to work with. So the bubble hour may be ending in a form, but, but Jean's not ending. You can reach her at jeanmccarthy.ca or you can go to unpickledblog.com. And I think there's, there's just so much here going through your website just for resources for people who just want to improve their recovery. You have the unpickled series of books 
you sent me a whole bunch of stuff today and I cannot wait to go through it because you gave me a year, an extra year's worth of content just with the stuff you sent to me today. I'm like, oh my, this is, uh, John, it's like Buddy C's book where it's like, you know, something you can read a chapter a day and right. it's something for your day. And I'm looking like, oh my gosh, you just gave me one to two years of shows just with this book when I start to feel like I've run out. Gene, thank you for spending your time with us. It's been a, it's been an honor to have you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invite and thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your service. We, we need your voices and, and, um, and thanks to the listeners for being part of this too. Like what would we be doing if we didn't have listeners listening to us? So thank you for, thank you everyone. I'm honored to be here. You got it. And we'll see you next week, everybody. Bye everyone. You made it this far into the podcast. That tells me you're a pretty big fan. If you like what we do and you find value in the podcast, consider a donation at buymeacoffee.com backslash soberfriendspod. Your donation keeps us on the air to help out the new guy and helps us defray some of our costs. If you find value in our podcast, please consider a donation at buymeacoffee.com slash soberfriendspod.